Hey everyone. Before we begin the episode, just a warning that we'll be discussing some sensitive and upsetting topics today, including the sexual abuse of young dance students. So please proceed with caution and do what you need to do to take care of yourselves. friends and welcome to the dance edit podcast i'm margaret fuhrer i'm lydia murray and i'm kate ansonin we are editors at dance media and in today's episode we'll talk about why sexual abuse continues to be such a problem in dance education as discussed in two important dance magazine stories we'll talk about how two recent controversies one involving the bachelor and one centered on chloe bailey of chloe and hallie reveal our obsession with policing black women's bodies especially if they're dancing we'll talk about bajoya das who's the dancer and former gymnast behind ucla's viral gymnastics floor routines and then we'll have our interview with tiffany ray fisher who is the artistic director of release monte dance and who's a leader in pretty much every way one can be a leader in the dance world. It was such a great interview. Tiffany talked a lot about the importance of dancer voices, first of all, about training dancers to speak up rather than training them to be silent, but also about how their voices can and should play important roles in everything from the development of choreography to the development of art support policy. So excited for you all to hear that. We have a lot of ground to cover in this episode, but before we get into all of it, just a quick prompt to please give this podcast a rating and if you have time or a view on your listening platform of choice, because of course that feedback is valuable to us, but it also helps other dance-minded people discover this great little community that we've built. Um, and also a reminder that transcriptions of all episodes are now available on our website, thedanceedit.com, and they're linked in each episode description too. Okay, let's do our weekly dance headline rundown because it was quite a busy dance news cycle. A new study by TRG Arts has revealed that most North American performing arts organizations are now planning to return to in-person performances this fall, but only 42% of U.S. companies expect to perform in primary venues before July 2021, while 55% of Canadian organizations surveyed are planning to return to in-person performances in their primary venues earlier than July. Uh, the curtain is ever so slowly rising on the Tony Awards. Organizers of the event announced that voters for the awards will finally be able to make their selections beginning March 1st, though the actual date for the awards themselves is still to be determined. It was announced that the ceremony will be held in coordination with the reopening of Broadway, and since Broadway is formally closed at least through May, many predict that the Tonys won't take the stage until the fall. But I'm just going to be here dreaming of the day we get to live in a world where Aaron Tveit has a Tony. May it come sooner rather than later. <laughs> the Uruguayan ballerina Maria Ricchetto, who is a former soloist with American Ballet Theater, is the new artistic director of Uruguay's Ballet Nacional del Sodre. That's such exciting news. Congrats to her. Australian Dance Theatre Artistic Director Gary Stewart is stepping down from his role at the end of 2021, following 22 years at the company's helm. To celebrate his immense impact on Australian dance, ADT will be presenting its biggest program in 25 years, bookended by two world premieres. Two big news items from the worlds of Broadway and film. John M. Chu will direct the feature film adaptation of the Broadway musical Wicked. He previously directed the hit film adaptation of the book Crazy Rich Asians, as well as the forthcoming film version of In the Heights. 
The Broadway hit musical Come From Away is set to be filmed with a September 2021 release date, and the Tony-winning director Christopher Ashley will be at the helm of the project. Um, Choreographer Emma Portner and actor Elliot Page have decided to divorce. The pair announced the decision in a statement on Tuesday, saying that they continue to have the utmost respect for each other and will continue to remain close friends. The star Dance Moms alum and YouTuber Jojo Siwa came out last month and has become a role model to young LGBTQ plus fans. I was delighted to see this all unfold. Yeah. Yes. The LSU Tiger Girls, the official dance team of Louisiana State University, will not be competing in the national championships for the first time in 22 years. And while the university released an official statement saying that the decision was due to COVID constraints, former and current members of the team have come forward saying that the university's decision was neither budgetary nor COVID related, but because the university decided to prioritize allocating resources to other athletic teams. Notably, the dance team is the only team at LSU that has been told they can't compete this season. If you're interested in supporting the Tiger Girls, they've started a petition on change.org, which we'll link below. Yeah, that is a complicated story. We'll link the petition. We'll also link some another news story about it just to give you a little more context. Happy Black History Month. Various dance companies and organizations are beginning their celebrations. We'll be highlighting these throughout the month. But for one, Memoirs of Blacks in Ballet, founded by dance magazine writer and contributing editor Teresa Ruth Howard, is honoring it with an immersive interactive exhibit titled The Constellation Project, Mapping the Dark Stars of Ballet, which we've talked about in a previous episode. But also on February 20th from 12 to 2 p.m., the organization is hosting Check In and Check Up, which is a free virtual town hall gathering for members of Mob Ballet and the wider community. Yeah, mark your calendar for that. So we're entering now a, a dark stretch of episode, um, touching on some deep-seated problems in the dance community. And the first is the prevalence of sexual abuse in dance, and particularly in dance education. So in its February issue, Dance Magazine ran two complimentary articles about the problem. The first by dancer and MOVE NYC founder Chanel De Silva is part personal testimony and part call to action. She talks about her own experience being abused by a dance teacher and about how and why dance institutions fail to protect their students. And then the second article features insights from a range of dance experts on what we can do, steps we can actually take to keep students safe. So one thing she said in this piece was, even though it never felt right, I kept thinking, if I said no, would my teacher not like me anymore? Would all of my opportunities for performances be taken away from me? Will anybody believe me if I speak out? Which, of course, are common thought patterns in these situations. And abusers take advantage of this. We heard from several experts, including Peter Flew, who is the director of the School of Education at University of Roehampton in London. One recommendation he gave was make basic safety precautions standard. Schools should do background checks on instructors, protect students' data. Teachers should be communicating with parents of minors, not directly with the children, which is something that happened in De Silva's case. Um, Schools should communicate their safeguarding policy to the public, make it available on the website and in written materials, and empower young dancers to feel safe in speaking out. De Silva also mentioned the need for improved systems for correction and prevention, which is another key factor if the dance community wants to solve this problem. She talked about participating in workshops and trainings in which consequences are clearly outlined. And this is crucial. Um, Abusers need to know that they cannot get away with harming people and that there won't simply be a slap on the wrist. And the work she's doing to advance this um, through her organization, Move NYC, is so, so important. Um, It needs to become the standard. 
Yeah, it's in any teacher student situation, the power dynamics are skewed. But I feel like that's especially true in dance because dance students are, first of all, taught to be silent and obedient in a way that makes it difficult for them to speak up when they encounter abuse. But dance instruction also, of course, involves a lot of touch. It's all about the the body, which can blur boundaries in a way that can be confusing to students and allow teachers to take advantage of situations. And also dance schools often exalt teachers in ways that other environments don't. Like they're not just your instructor there. It's your mentor. It's an an artist, a gatekeeper, this person who can connect you to the professional dance world that you so desperately want to join. Those are some of the reasons why this problem is so entrenched in the dance world, why it's so persistent. Something else De Silva wrote about that I thought was something I think a lot of dancers could relate to is how in her own experience, a lot of times the relationships between dance teachers, dance leadership, and their students can often be thought of as familial rather than an exclusively educational relationship. Um, And I think that that is something that, you know, often in the dance world, we consider to be a real positive, you know, oh, this studio is a family, we're not just a studio. But I mean, it does make a situation in which it's really easy for the lines to get blurred, like you were saying, Margaret, where you don't know what is appropriate. Is it appropriate for a teacher to drive a student home alone? Um, Is it appropriate for a teacher to be texting directly with a student? Lydia, that's something that you spoke about that Peter Flew mentioned that in no case should a teacher be texting directly with a student. They should be going through their parents and making those kind of delineations of relationships much more clear. Yeah. So that second feature, as Lydia started to get into, talked about a bunch of, I mean, actual steps that we can take, things that we can do right now. And some of them seem very common sense. It's almost shocking that some of these practices have not already been implemented Mm -hmm. at most dance schools. Like, as Lydia said, background checks for teachers, data protection. Some of the other sources in the story talked about training administrative staff and teachers to recognize signs of abuse and then giving students multiple safe ways to report it. There is even a suggestion of having someone on staff who's a trained advocate that students can go to for help when they need it. And then just bigger picture thoughts about normalizing conversations about abuse in dance to help remove the stigma and also to encourage accountability so that adults who see or suspect abuse report it rather than enabling it either consciously or unconsciously. And then also Sydney Skybetter talked about rethinking the use of touch in the classroom with an emphasis on consent. And there's a great dance teacher story about that that we can link to too. So lots to think about, lots of progress to be made. Here's hoping that that article sparks some some real change. And thank you to Chanel for sharing that story that took a lot of courage. So in our next segment, Staying on the theme of this hurts, but we need to talk about it, we want to get into two pop culture stories from the past week that reveal the ways Black women's bodies and actions are heavily policed. And the first story concerns the harassment that Chloe Bailey, who's one half of the duo Chloe and Hallie, has been receiving after posting dance videos on social media. She did the popular TikTok bus it challenge and silhouette challenge, both of which are by their very nature, sexy. That's kind of the point. And immediately commenters started villainizing her for embracing her sexuality. So it just, why why are we still punishing Black women for using their bodies to express themselves? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. Um, Just to sort of recap, if you don't spend all of your time on the internet like I do, um, Chloe and Halle Bailey, 
iconic sister duo have spent most of their musical careers packaged as a duo, but recently they have started to forge their own paths, at least on social media, by creating individual Instagram accounts. And as Margaret mentioned, Chloe posted both her versions of the Bust It Challenge and the Silhouette Challenge, as well as a video of herself staging her room in her underwear. I mean, who hasn't done it? And she almost immediately got a lot of intense criticism in the comments, you know, saying she was over-sexualizing herself, saying she looked desperate or thirsty. And it was just incredibly upsetting. She's 22, very much in control of her body, very much allowed to post whatever she wants on the internet. And while Chloe Bailey shouldn't have to explain why she's choosing to dance and dress and act however she chooses, she did by going live on Instagram. And it was a really emotional post. She was in tears for a portion of the live. But one of the most amazing things she said was, I think it's so important and so special when a Black woman can be strong and stand in her power in every single way. Yeah, I feel like in the entertainment industry, there's sort of this damned if you do, damned if you don't trap set for specifically for Black female entertainers. Because audiences often demand that Black female artists present themselves in a sexual way that sells. And Black women are often hypersexualized even as children. I mean, that is a trope that, as we've talked about before in the podcast, goes back to slavery. But then our culture also shames Black women for exploring their own sexuality. And that's especially true when dance is involved. Like the Chloe Bailey videos that attracted the most attention were dance videos. And they attracted that attention because Mm -hmm. they were unapologetically about her body. That's what dance is. It is about your body. She should be allowed to embrace that part of her personhood without being held to this impossible entertainment industry double standard. Yeah, I saw a lot of commenters saying, you know, Chloe is only one year younger than Kylie Jenner. And nobody seems to respond to the way that Kylie posts, you know, if it is, you know, either in revealing clothing or doing dances that might be deemed sexual. It really does seem to be something that they're placing on Chloe in particular as a black woman. Yeah. Yeah. While women generally sort of face that difficult double standard in terms of sexualization, white women can kind of get away with making the most of it, with capitalizing on their sexuality and not being condemned for exploring that side of themselves. Yeah. Black women sort of have to walk this cat's cradle of tight ropes. It's like you have to be seemingly everything simultaneously, even if many of those things contradict each other. And women, of course, in general, have to deal with you know the virgin whore dichotomy. But that seems especially pronounced for black women. You don't really get the luxury of being multidimensional often. You're kind of pushed into one box or another. And some of the people who were attacking her seem to have actually been other black women or just other black people. The reason that sometimes happens is just internalized misogynoir and internalized racism. And, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm sniping at the wrong parties here. This ultimately stems from patriarchy and white supremacy. Um, but that is another issue. And it's difficult to to address. It's difficult to talk about. Margaret, you mentioned the trap that the music industry sets for Black women, which was so well addressed in a recent Teen Vogue op-ed. And this is digressing somewhat, but Black people are often tasked with being twice as good for half as much. And that's an expression that many of us grow up hearing. Uh, But that typically requires effort. And for women, discernible effort tends to be frowned upon. Women are supposed to be effortless. 
trying too hard, in quotes, is often hurled against us in various contexts. And for Black women, historically, we've had to simultaneously fulfill a wide variety of roles for the sake of survival. But also, just those two expectations tend to collide. The task becomes to be twice as good or twice as much and effortlessly so. So even though it might not apply in this instance, because Chloe was clear about this being part of her self-expression, for any Black women who do do it to meet the industry standard, they're pressured to do even more of the things that the mainstream considers sexy, just to be considered maybe almost sexy enough, which can advance their careers. And yet a woman who seems like she's trying to be sexy is scorned. I just, we need to support Chloe and Hallie as a team. We need to support them as individuals. They are just so freaking talented. I, it's made me so mad. So over in another corner of the pop culture universe, there's a similar issue happening. Uh, This season, Bachelor contestant Victoria Larson has been no stranger to controversy or drama, seemingly taking on a new target each week that the show continues. Notably, most of the women that she's chosen to align herself against are women of color. This week, it was revealed that she had called fellow contestant Ryan Clater a hoe because Clater is a professional dancer. I don't even know where to start. Um, Larson's microaggressions have not been subtle at all this season, but for me, this one kind of took the cake because quite literally a black woman told Larson that she was a dancer and Larson's immediate response was to slut shame her and then laugh about it to her face. Um, Clater literally broke down in tears while talking with Matt James, the current bachelor about what had happened with Larson. And it was just deeply painful to watch. Larson tried to claim that the situation had been taken out of context, but as Matt James said, in what context is calling another woman a hoe acceptable? Uh so many things to be angry about in the story. The way that the story has been covered, and I myself am, am guilty of this in the Dance Edit newsletter, emphasizing that Clater is the right kind of professional dancer. Like she trained at Ailey. She was featured on a glossy cable show. Why Why do we have to even do that? What if she were an exotic dancer? That still wouldn't make her promiscuous. This like conflating of dancing with sexuality because both involve the body, automatically problematic. And that goes back to like the 19th century days when ballet dancers were sexually exploited and expected to prostitute themselves because they danced. I have to admit, it shocked me to hear that people still talk about dancers this way. The fact that women using their bodies in seemingly any context still get sexualized to this extent is extremely troubling Mm -hmm. and backward. Okay, let's talk about happier things now in our final roundtable segment. So last week, you probably saw and squeed over UCLA gymnast Nia Dennis's latest viral floor routine, which featured songs by Kendrick Lamar and Missy Elliott. And it was basically as much a dance party as it was a gymnastic showcase. It was it was fantastic. It was fun. This week, the New York Times published an interview with the choreographer of that routine, Bijoya Das, who is a dancer and a former gymnast who's been working with UCLA's team since 2019. And we've talked a lot on the podcast about what role dance plays in sports like figure skating and gymnastics, which clearly have dance elements, but often deprioritize them in the pursuit of more extreme athletic accomplishment. And Das had really insightful things to say about that complicated relationship between dance and gymnastics. Yeah, we've talked a lot on this podcast about how, you know, dance kind of interlaces with other art forms, athletic forms. And Doss even mentioned that that was something that she really appreciates, how she loves seeing her choreography paired with something else, like in this case, gymnastics. 
Um, she has an extensive commercial dance background. She's performed with Beyonce, Pink, Usher, Avril Lavigne, and others. And her choreography was also featured on the second season of Glow. And she's gotten involved at the collegiate level with gymnastics because dance is an important component of collegiate gymnastics. It's what ties the routine together. Um, it's what gives it, you know, personality and allows the gymnasts to show who they are through their routines. But it is an element that is highly subjective, so deductions are rarely taken. But it's still really important, especially at UCLA, where the gymnastics team has a strong dance tradition. The former head coach actually came to the team as a dancer and choreographer rather than a gymnast. Dennis's routine in particular went viral, I think, because it incorporated elements of dance that is familiar to a lot of people. Doss included TikTok moves in Dennis's routine, both the nene and the woe, and also incorporated stepping. So I think it was just really amazing to see sort of commercial dance, hip hop getting interwoven into this gymnastics routine and getting to see Dennis really show her personality. She was smiling. She was all over the floor. It was incredible. And and when we say incorporated moves that are familiar, what we're really talking about is moves that have roots in Black social dance, which I think mm-hmm. is also important to call out. Um, Daz was talking about this interesting difference between collegiate and international gymnastics. It's not – so her interviewer, Gia Corliss, who's interviewing her, I guess kind of presumed that the rules were different, that collegiate gymnastics, there were less rigid rules that allowed for more dancing. But it's not – that's not actually the case. Part of it, of course, is that, you know, yes, international gymnasts – are expected to do more and harder tricks. They just have less time for dance. Okay. But she said it's also a culture thing. Performing your routine as if it, you know, the way you would on a stage isn't really part of international gymnastics culture right now. And if you do incorporate dance, it's usually ballet-based dance. But could we change that? Can we change that? I mean, clearly there is, this is only making gymnastics feel more relevant, feel more compelling Mm-hmm. And also Nia Dennis hasn't ruled out an Olympics run, so that would be fun. I mean, all I saw on the Twitter comments of this video were, why don't the Olympics look like this? Why don't international gymnastics competitions look like this? We need to see more of floor routines like this. It kind of reminds me of the conversation we had a few weeks ago about a lodgeball day and figure skating. It's like white supremacy mm-hmm. has so deeply infiltrated um, sports, even in ways that kind of seem subtle, like you we're so used to seeing kind of like ballet-based movement in gymnastics so that when you see social dance or something that feels a little bit more modern, more multicultural, it just stands out so much and it's so refreshing. More of that, please. Also, side note, Das is unpaid. She's a volunteer coach, which is bonkers. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently that's because NCAA rules say only three paid coaches can be on a team staff. But oh, why does dance always come last? We got to fix that. Agree. Yes. Hard agree. Indeed. Let's start valuing our choreographers monetarily, please. It is time. Yes. Yes, please. All right. We're going to take a break. Um, when we come back, we'll have our interview with Tiffany Ray Fisher. So stay tuned. The Pillow Voices Dance Through Time podcast brings listeners closer to notable personalities connected with Jacob's Pillow from 1933 to today. Each episode brings treasures from the Pillow archives to life, sharing rarely heard recordings alongside personal stories and perspectives from leading artists, 
thought leaders, and innovators. Jacob's Pillow, lauded by the New York Times as the dance center of the nation, is a National Historic Landmark. It's a recipient of the prestigious National Medal of the Arts. And of course, it's home to America's longest running international dance festival. So be sure to listen to their podcast at pillowvoices.org or wherever you get your podcasts. So today we are privileged to be joined by Tiffany Ray Fisher. Tiffany is a writer, a choreographer, a teacher, and the artistic director of Elisa Monte Dance in New York City. She is a prolific artist and a deeply knowledgeable leader and advocate for dance and the arts. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's an absolute honor and pleasure to be here. I'm really excited. We're so thrilled to have you. And we obviously have a lot to talk about in terms of the work that you've been doing recently. But before we get into that, would you mind telling our listeners a little more about yourself and your relationship with dance? Sure. I think I so appreciate your introduction. That feels that feels uh, right. I think the only other thing that I would add to that would probably be organizer. And that has that has taken the shape of organizing demonstrations. But also, I think of with all of the things and in, including like curation of Bryant Park and all it's, it's about organizing. And so I, I feel as a choreographer, I was well set up for this particular time in history, just because of all of the skill sets that come to bear being a choreographer and artistic director. So I think that's the only thing that I would add, but um, outside of that, I just, I really love the field of dance. And I think that's something that really uh, changes my approach to movement because it's not just about this piece, this dancer, this project. It's like, how is this going to affect or what is this doing to the bigger ecosystem and what is my impact in that? So every every decision, whether it's casting or like what project to, to take on next always has to go through this kind of matrix of my mind of like, what overall are we doing to the field. And so, um, yeah, I think that's just something that might differentiate my work from, from others is, is that, that little nugget. Yeah. I love the idea of organizing as the through line from your artistic practice to your advocacy work and, and everything else. Um, so let's get right into one of the reasons we wanted to have you on right now, which is that you and Justin Krebs of The Tank recently wrote an op-ed for Gotham Gazette responding to the New York State Arts Revival Plans that Governor Cuomo described in his State of the State address. First of all, how did you and Justin end up sort of conceiving this piece together? Oh, it was very quick, one. And I think it's Justin and I go way back. Like we've known each other, I mean, like 15 years or something. So um, I think one of the things that Justin and I do a lot is that we kind of just document our thoughts on things. We're both, we both feel very strongly about the arts and uh, politics being very closely tied. And so that's a bond that we've always had. Uh, but Justin called me, like I think it was like the day before it was due or something. It was like, hey, I have this, this thought. Did you watch this? Like, would you co-author this with me? And it's like, yeah, I've been, you know, since, I mean, before this time, but definitely since March, I have so many ideas and thoughts and things about this period and how policy could actually help artists. And, you know, New York is so special in the sense of like, it's one, this pure saturation of arts that we have here. We're one of the few places that could go big. Like we could really go big. And I think 
that was just a little bit of the disappointment. I think that Justin and I are feeling we're like, oh, it just feels small. It feels small compared to the like new energy thing. Like, you know, that portion of the state of the state was like so epic. And it's like, well, we need to be epic too as, as part of the like, part of the fabric that makes up the cultural identity of the city. Like this is where you should go big because we're one of the few that can. And I think that where New York leads, other major metropolitan hubs will follow. So this is not the time to go small. This is not the time to be um, conservative. Like this is the time to go for broke. Cause like, what do we have to lose? You know what I mean? So I think it was that sentiment that just allowed us to like, go, you know, just go crazy. And I think we went back and forth maybe twice and that was it. It was a very quick process. But I think part of that, I would imagine, this was my first piece co-authoring uh, anything. I can imagine that process could be quite painful. Um, and I, I, you know, I think it's similarly to any type of collaboration, like your collaborators need to be key. So if you have that running well, then it's like most likely everything else will fall into place. But I, and I think also knowing that it was an op-ed, like these are some, this is, these are I statements, right? So you have some more freedom to be like, this is what we think. You can agree with that. You can disagree with that. And I think both Justin and I are really okay with the idea um, of agreeing to disagree. But we also felt it was compelled to respond, to respond directly as artists to this plan that talks about us, but we didn't see ourselves represented in this plan. So understanding that that's not what Cuomo does, like that's not, you know, it's like from people that do this, here are some things for you to take, leave for your advisors to take into consideration, for other artists to take into consideration. And hopefully it will engage others to just think about it because I think part of, um, maybe where some of the breakdown happens is that there's just complacency. And I don't know that it's an artist thing. I just think in general, it's like, well, I'll wait for them to tell me what I can, what I can't, what's going on. And it's like, no, why don't you give some suggestions? Why don't you start something? Like no one's coming to save us, right? And there's something, I find that really exciting and liberating. And I'm sure lots of people find that super scary because it's like, we are all we have. So like, Let's go. I think that's great. But I understand the other side of it that is like, that's not necessarily the narrative, right? That's been passed down. It's like, we wait, we're very polite dancers and we'll wait until, you know, we get our, our entree into whatever we're supposed to go to. Yeah, especially in dance. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, it, you know, it starts with how we're trained. So there's a little bit of untraining that has to come in for us to, I think, bring our full selves to bear in these situations. Yeah, it seems like over the past, like during the pandemic, unlearning has been as important for as learning for a lot totally. of us. Totally, yeah. Um, I really appreciated the empathy in this piece. You know, as you were saying, this idea that, hey, we get it, your policymakers with a ton on your plates, and this is sort of your opening offer, but at the same time, we have valuable voices and you should listen to them. And I also love the idea of approaching arts policy with the same creativity and ambition that artists bring to their artistic work, as, as you touched on before. So we'll link to the full article in our episode description, and listeners, please read it if you haven't already. But can you lay out, there are five principles that you suggest lawmakers consider when formulating art support policy. Can you talk about those? 
Well, yes. Uh, yes, I can. <laughs> I can do that. So one, of, one of the things that we talk about is just space, right? Like space is a huge issue in New York City, but I think lots of times people, you know, there's this mystery around the arts. Like, where does it happen? I don't know. I just showed up to a performance and like, that must be where it happened. It's like, no, there's all of these spaces that art happens in before it might even get out to the public. And so having that consideration, especially where, you know, people are saying there's an exodus of people from the city right now. So what is that? What are those vacant spaces then? How are they contributing again to what the city will be? And so just to have that as a consideration. And then again, the idea that creativity isn't free, like even giving these, like our op-ed away, like if we were consultants, that would have been real paid money. You know what I'm saying? So like those things, like in that sense, because Justin and I decided to do this, like we're happy to do this, but that can't be the way that politicians think about, again, something that is so crucial to this city. So like in 2018, I think it was the, where, where did it, it's the Arts Action Fund, said that $114 billion were contributed from the arts to New York State. So you can't treat us like a side hustle or a hobby. We're here in a real, real way. And so as you think about compensation, as you think about, you know, like our contribution, the flip side of that, of what it takes and what we're owed for that contribution has to be part of that conversation as well. And that comes back to policy. That comes back to like healthcare, to leave, to all of those things, not only just what we get paid salary, right? But all of those other just human aspects that are made by policy. Like that's, that's what that is. Um, and then just reminding, reminding our politicians that everyone, that everyone benefits from live theater. It's been proven across the board and it's like, I'm tired of proving that. It's like, we understand this, so back it. But, you know, like the, these, these things. And then I, again, the idea of like this arts ecosystem, it can't just be the top tops. It can't just be the big guys. It has to be everyone because there is this aspirational, inspirational arc as well in the city of like being a student to being or whatever, you know, to like there's this big arc that happens. And so there's needs to be support and funding along the way. And not everybody wants to be a prima ballerina. Not everyone wants to be like, some people want to be individual artists. Some people want to work on community-based activities. And those are all valid things that need support because if not in this city, where? Like, who else is doing this? So again, this is a place for us to be groundbreaking. And as we're having this four-part state of the state, we just felt it was a missed opportunity to go big, to go really big, which leads us to our, our, our the last point, which was like the plan was just too small. I was talking about a thousand artists. Like I could pull together a thousand artists and it felt, felt like it. Do you know what I mean? Like, no. And so what we were proposing, it's like, why why thousand? Why, why not 50,000? 50,000. And even at 50,000, it would still be, you would just hit, like, you would still have a huge ton of people that aren't involved in that. And that's not the idea. It's like not, we don't want a ton of people left out. But again, we're one of the only, we're one of the few cities that can say that. That like, even with 50,000 artists contributing to 
whatever this this thing is, that there's still people that that doesn't touch because that's how vast and expansive this arts network and ecosystem and economic like driver, all the things that we are, are. Like, so that's huge. And I think for us, we just wanted the plan to be considered from all of those areas. And it felt a little bit more like quick, um, quick fix star power, which is definitely part of the thing. Like we have star power, like we need to use all of the tools in our arsenal, right? Like we can't leave anything on the table here. Like we got to throw everything at it. But I think that I've seen with what Cuomo has been able to do with COVID-19 that he can go a layer deeper. So this was a call to just ask, can you go a layer deeper here? Because we've seen that you're capable of doing it. So I think that just laying that laying that out in the most respectful terms possible was the goal of this. Because we're not trying to fight, but we are trying to be clear with where there are missed opportunities. And also, Justin and I are very solution-based. So like, here are some things. Like, here are some things off the top of our head, if you're interested. Yeah, I also admire that you just came out and said that it's not your job as artists to come up with solutions to these big economic and structural problems. But then also, yeah, you have expertise that legislators should be considering when formulating policy. Yeah. How do you think artists and policymakers could work together more effectively? I I think that I don't even think that we're not working together ineffectively. I just don't think we're working together, period. I think one of the, and that's one of the first things I did with COVID. I did a, um, an Instagram challenge called a movement through movement and just put out to dancers to just make a 16 count phrase about some political something that they were interested in, wanted to learn more about, were frustrated about, were thrilled with. And I said, I will take these videos and I will get it into the hands of like lawmakers or candidates who are running so that you can have a conversation and just sit down. And I, I just, I think that's what's missing. I don't know that we're fully aware of each other. And I think on the dance side, I don't think artists are fully aware of how much policy affects your everyday life. It's not some other thing that comes up every four years when we're in crisis. Like, I'm really glad that everyone's paying attention right now, but it shouldn't have to take the almost like full destruction of democracy for you to pay attention. Like it shouldn't have to take that. It shouldn't have to take a global pandemic, right? Like for you to care and understand that you are intrinsically linked to these people that are making rules about and for you. That you have to rise up and say something about these rules or else they're just going to keep going forward. And it's not necessarily anti you, but if you don't insert yourself into that conversation, the conversation will be had without you. And I think also there's something demigod-like about especially New York politics, they're people, right? Like at the end of the day, they're people and they're people that are representing you. So I think that that idea too, that they're not better than, they're not more deserving of, their time's no more important than yours. They're here because you put them there and they are and should be responsible to you. So every time you don't write that up and you don't sign that petition. You don't do the thing. You're silencing yourself. And like, we don't need, we'll be silenced enough on the outside. We don't need to, to internalize that. So I think that's where it is. I don't, I wish that, that it was like ineffective 
because that would mean that we're having some kind actual of. conversation. Yeah. And that there's something's falling through the cracks. I think that that's something that I aspire to have is just that, that there are, there is this acknowledgement between the two and, and an understanding of how the two can work together because they're not, they're not separate thoughts there. It's, it's one thought. And I think, especially with COVID, that was very, for me, like when it came to, you know, my phone would be ringing and like, what are you working on? How are you responding? And like, for me, I didn't make a COVID piece. I organized demonstrations in Harlem and at City Hall. And it felt, it had the same creative energy and buzz around it. And I think it goes back to what we were saying, like organizing, right? Like that's what I'm passionate about. So I really didn't have, I didn't want to say anything abstract. I wanted to be very clear about what I was saying. And I didn't want to make a story ballet. So like in dance, in the, in the genres that I work in are ballet and modern. So modern is, you know, more abstract. And I didn't want an abstraction. I didn't want an abstraction about what I was talking about. And I didn't want, I didn't want to make ballet. Friends, like that, that was, that was it. But it's still, you know, it's still organizing bodies in space. There's still movement. There's still like, there's still all of this around it. And it felt very, uh, it didn't feel outside of my practice at all. And, um, and so I think that was, that was, that was interesting to feel that because even though I know it's unified in here, like in my, in my being, it was wonderful to feel that it was, it felt unified and satisfying outside of that. We get to be together doing what we love and how many ways can we do that? And let's challenge ourselves to find that joy, to spread it and to take that outside of the four walls that we have or the virtual space that we have. And like, how can we spread that? And that feels like a big part of my job too, as a leader, like leader, fill in the blank, however you want to. But that also feels like part of the job is like, if we can unify around joy, because we have to get out of the grief cycle, we have to get out of the grief cycle. So if we can unify around joy, like imagine the possibility. And that I feel is a huge part of what it is to be an artist, right? Is to dream, is to imagine something outside of what you see, a, a, a reality that is outside of your current reality and to, to put your imprint on that, to put your fingerprints all over that and then to move forward from there. And it's like, hopefully you'll surprise yourself. Yeah. And then that idea that that's something greater that you're giving to goes beyond the dance studio as well. Like oh. if you're a dancer, it's not just within dance, it's everything you do. Actually, I, I mean, I don't want to put too much of this on dancers because when we're talking mm -hmm. about artist and legislator communication, a lot mm -hmm. of it should fall on legislators as well. <laughs> but it does feel like there are two things in the dance world that make this hard. And one is the way that dance education works, which is teaching dancers that their voices aren't worth hearing. Oh, God. Yeah. And yes. then also that insidious idea of art for art's sake. Like we do what we do and we do mm -hmm. it in a bubble. And that's just not true. Yeah. It's just not true. You're, you're so right. It's just pure, it's just lies. Just like absolute lies. And I, yeah, I mean, one of the things, and it, it does, it goes back to the training and Three years ago, I actually took over a ballet school in Lake Placid, New York that I run remotely. And I've been up in, in Lake Placid quite a bit 
um, because I didn't feel like running a school remotely during COVID was like the move. So (laughs) I've been, I've been up there, but like that, that I was like, and, and because it was a ballet school, I was like, oh, this is perfect. This is perfect to like, just pull that out and be like, nope, I'm going to need you to speak to me like a human person. I'm going to need you to articulate your thoughts in a real way. Like, I'm going to need you to have opinions and I'm going to encourage you to have that. And I'm not going to accept you being in the space and not like, we're just, we're not going to do that. And I'm going to do it with as much, as much like love and care as possible. But like, at the end of the day, we're, this is going down, like this is happening. And what I tell too, not only my students there, but a lot of like what I'm talking to college students and like, you're in rarefied air in a rarefied space where people are asking for your opinion. Trust and believe, especially if you're a woman in this field, there are going to be few moments when they're going to be like, and what do you, what do you think? And now everyone be quiet and listen. No, like, no, that's not a thing. So when you have those opportunities, don't stare at me as if you don't have a thought in your head, take it. And, you know, I think that you know this, because I, I talk about this a lot, like train your voice, like you train every other muscle in your body. It has to be razor sharp because when the time is ready, you got to say the thing. Because like, again, Justin and I wrote that article the night before it was published. So I had to have something to say, right? Or the opportunity would have been missed. That's it. So you can't wait for permission to be a full human being. You can't wait for someone to ask you how you're feeling about COVID in this, as it affects your art, you have to say, this is what's going on and do something like be ready to back up those words with action. Even in my own company, like I'll come and I'll be like, good morning. And they'll be like mutterings. And I don't want to be like, I said, good morning. (laughs) Like, that's not what I'm trying to, but I was talking to like one of my younger dancers and it's like, oh, I've just been watching you for a long time. And I'm still just a little, like, I can't believe I'm in the room. So, you know, like, I don't want to be disrespectful. And I'm like, but I'm, talking to you so like there needs to be that like I'm saying good morning and I would love for you to look up and look me in the face and say good morning like that but like that's where we are and it makes me sad that again there's going to be so many things that will silence us for us the fact that we're internalizing it and doing it to ourselves is just heartbreaking it's heartbreaking to me because we have so much to offer I want to like stitch that on a pillow (laughs) every time you think your silence is respectful remember that it can actually be a form of disrespect to the person asking for input yeah yeah yourself yeah um so i also i want to talk about another facet of your leadership because you have been a leader for years in conversations about how to make the dance community and the larger arts community more inclusive and equitable. And a couple of months ago, you wrote a piece for Western Arts Alliance about changes you've made to help move Elisa Monte dance toward that goal. And again, we'll link to the article so listeners can read it in full. But would you talk about what those changes are and why and how you decided to implement them? Uh, Yeah. So I think one thing of like just how I look or like one pillar of how I look at leadership is just like, what part do I play? I don't believe that every, like there are a lot of systematic things that exist, right? That I have nothing to do with, but my internalization, my agreeing or disagreeing with those things, that is on me, right? So 
I think that one of it, it starts there. So the, the very first kind of concept in that piece talks about calling in black. And it's, it starts talking about um, the murder of Trayvon Martin and having my one black employee at the time who was male, not feeling safe coming in to work. And it was just, it's, you know, and it really just got me thinking that I was like, wow, I'm in a definitely trauma altered place working on this grant right now. I didn't even think about it. Like, I didn't even think about coming into work that day, even though my heart was broken, my head was nowhere near where it needed to be. And, you know, when I was speaking to him and telling him, like, of course you can stay home, he's like, I just don't want to let you down. And I was like, that, there was that idea that I was like, oh man, we gotta, I don't know, like we gotta do something. And so I was just talking to him about how I was feeling and we came up with this concept of just like calling in black. And sometimes, um, and what I can say is that it can be open to any traumatic event for anything. Like we can have the whole company, like when our capital was under siege, our whole company call in for that. So it started because this was a black issue, but I want to be clear that it extends to any type of like no local or national trauma to it. And to acknowledge you might need work to get through it, to distract yourself. You might need a day off you might need to go see a grief counselor. There, there's lots of ways to being, but I think I, what I wanted to do was just acknowledge in the workplace that this thing happened and give space for my dancers, my staff, my faculty to be able to um, decide how they want to move forward without it being dictated to them, that we're going to move forward this way. Like, no, there's no we in this. And I think when there are those, those tragedies, that's the time to go real individual, not assume that like, oh, it was a black thing. So all of the black people are going to do this. Like all of my Asian people are like, no, 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 no. Like different people are going to need different things. And so I think what calling in black did for me was just an acknowledgement of an action of some type of grief related, trauma related something and being able to bring that into the workspace without it being called unprofessional, without it, do you know what I mean? Without the like stigma attached to it. It's like, no, black men are getting murdered in the street. I'm going to take a moment. The end. And I'm not going to do so with your permission. And I'm not going to do so apologetically. I'm going to do so because it's the right thing to do. And I think that was the other part of that. Like as an organization, have a stance about these things. Like you by your actions have to, and I, and I don't mean a statement when I say stance, because there was a lot of statements and there's not been a lot of change based off of those statements. I mean a stance that like your day-to-day, -day, how you move through the world and the choices that you're making back up whatever that feeling was or whatever that new initiative is or whatever that new policy is, right, within your, within your company. I think... Um, you know, other things like around that article was this concept that I'm still really struggling with is like this idea of like the model minority and like one person having to embody a whole people. It's hard when you've been asked to represent your peoples with every action that you take, with every word that you say. And so there, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was like, am I responding differently? Am I like what again, what is my part to play? And what I think of like 
your 20s and just just the mistakes that you have to make in your 20s like you just have to like that's the time you're just trying stuff you know and you're just like you're going big and grabbing this and sometimes it's working and like it's just like you cannot pay me enough to go back to my 20s but I'm so glad that I went through them because it gave me resilience you know um but I just I don't I don't know that like black and brown dancers get to get to have their 20. I don't get, I don't know that they get to have like those stupid 20 mistakes and get to be forgiven in that same way. It stays with them and then they're hard to work with or they're not responsible or they're not. And I'm just like, so that was something too, that I really wanted to investigate. It's like, are we just putting more pressure on these communities because there's already the stigma around it and 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 so that's something I feel like there's another article fully just within that idea because it's something I'm still still really grappling with and trying to like unearth my own 20s and how I felt that was perceived with different directors as well as as a director looking within that and making space not to be not to not take your job seriously but us understanding where you are in your life you know, like just under, like having some compassion, I think is what ultimately I think is missing within that conversation is like compassion and empathy. And then the last thing I will say is, is that I always am within this article and within my company talking about the difference between equity and equality. People, different people need different things. And you shouldn't be afraid to be, if you can, to give those things freely. And not, and I, you know, I don't believe in like a blanket policy of like, again, we are all, it's like, no, what does this person need? What does this person need? And being able to see all of the individuals that make up your organization will ultimately make a much stronger organization if you allow yourself to do that and feel okay about doing that. Because that, I think that's where guilt can pop in. It's like, well, I didn't do this for that one, but I just like, but did that one need it? Like, do they need it? So it's just asking to go a layer deeper instead of like, I'm going to do this. It's like, well, that might be great, but is it, can, is it? I think in just allowing yourself to go that one layer deeper and say like, is that what's needed? Or is that easier, what's easiest for me? So yeah, I think that I had a great time writing, um, writing that that article and I feel like each one of those kind of sections could be its own thing because it's quite multifaceted but that was the challenge was to kind of grab big ideas and be able to also give bullet points for leaders in the field like if you're unsure it's like here just grab these two things you don't have to go through the same thing you've highlighted it nicely it's just like just grab that grab that so you can just wrap your head around those smaller concepts and see what blooms for your individual like org here it is organized for you. Yes, yes. You yeah. know, that or I'm telling you, that is that's the thing across the board. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to make sure that we talk about some of the dance work that you've been doing recently because you have a lot of projects going on. So you have a new dance film mm -hmm. that's set on the farm of abolitionist leader John Brown up in Lake Placid, which sounds fascinating. Yeah. What what inspired that project? How did it come to be? Oh, geez, that's the story. So we were actually in Lake Placid finishing up our summer intensive. And I had tacked on an extra week because we were, there's um, these like collegiate Olympic games that, that happen and tour the world every, every two years. And there's a cultural exchange that happens between the host country and the com country that's coming up. 
So uh, Lake Placid was set to host in 2022. And so I was supposed to create the cultural exchange between uh, Switzerland and the US. So that's when I was going to have the dancers like dancing down Main Street and on top of like the ski jump and then, you know, on the ice skating rink and doing all the things to like welcome people to the US. And I was like, this is a great opportunity to do this because this was at the beginning of like COVID and people were not loving the US. So I was like, let's turn it around. <laughs> like, let's, we need some good PR here. So let's just like, let's get that going. So as like, while we were there, um, obviously because of COVID, like I thought what was going to happen was that maybe everyone else would be invited to the games and like our part would just have to be virtual because our numbers were so out of control. But what ended up happening is the whole project just like, just like, like it imploded. It was in a spectacular fashion. It was like, oh, okay. So then the producer of Lake Placid Center for the Arts, which is who is also a producing partner of this event, he came and he's like, I have good news and I have bad news. And basically told me like everything is not happening. I have dancers that are coming up half are already there. Like others are literally like in the van coming up right now. I have like crews coming up to shoot and like, okay. And he asked me the simplest question. Is there an opportunity here? And I said, yes. And I said, full disclosure, I don't know what it is yet, but I know that I know that there is one. And I was like, I'm going to walk away and think now, but I'm going to, I'm going to do something like I'm going to, I'm going to come back with whatever this opportunity could be. So I was like looking around, looking around. Cause I was like, you know what? Well, what he said, he's like, you know, you've been such a part of like the Adirondacks. I would love to have something Adirondacky in your rep. And I was like, Oh, I had not considered that, but Lisa Monte dance and the Lake Placid center for the arts have over a 30 year relationship. It's been going on for forever. So I was like, okay. So I started looking into the history of this place. And I wasn't finding things that were like hitting. I wasn't finding things that were hitting. And then actually John Donk, who's also works at the, at the center said, have you heard about John Brown? And I was like, no, like, what does that have to do with anything? And he's like, oh, like his farm, his everything is here. I was like, where here? Like, I was like, John, I have been coming to Lake Placid almost for two decades. And are you telling me that this place has been here and no one, like, how do I not know about this? Like, I was like, this is so upsetting, but I don't have time, like whatever. So I spoke to my husband who was up with me and as a former um, dancer with the company. So he took our, he like went out and just started scouting locations for us. It's like, all right, we're going to make a dance film about John Brown somehow. And I got connected with this nonprofit called John Brown lives who I've now since then have done other projects uh, with them. And I just started, I was like, okay, what? I like the idea of like the past and present. It's, it's felt uh, relevant, particularly right now. It's like what I liked the idea of like a descendant of John Brown coming to this land and the land kind of like them being, feeling a buzz or something that comes alive for them. And so I took that, we had literally one week to film everything to put together some type of narrative, to pull together costumes, to pull like, and it was like, it, it, it came together. So the piece is called Geography of Grace and we're working on a, um, a tour of it in movie theaters um, in the like Adirondack area and the area that was set aside for freed blacks in that area of New York state to have it tour through there. So it was like a lovely blessing in disguise. I had never done or been interested in a dance film 
before. Um, and so that felt um, really good. And I think for a place that's that has served as my cultural and creative home for so long, it feels good to go, give back in this way too, because I really love Lake Placid and I love it's, I've had, you know, over 16 residencies there and now run the school there. And it feel, we feel very much a part of that community. So it felt good to be able to, um, let them know that like everything they need to survive this time in history is like in the soil. It's all there. It feels almost like that was written in the stars. Like, I feel like I was never into astrology, but now since the pandemic, suddenly I'm like, what were the planets doing then? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, (laughs) I love it. Oh, that's great. So you also have a project called HER, which stands for human equality required. Is that right? Yes commissioned by Harlem Stage as part of their celebration of the Harlem Renaissance Centennial. And the Mm -hmm. summary says that it's a tribute to the work and lives of three Black queer playwrights. Can you talk a little about this commission and and why you wanted to honor these artists in particular? Sure. So it's um, Alice Dunbar-Nelson, Angelina Weld-Bremke, and Mary um, Powell Burrell. I always say that wrong. Mary Powell Burrell. And I think I was randomly, this is again, one of those things that's like, it's good to just speak your truths because I was uh, the director of at the, of this program at Harlem stage had come to another piece that I had done, a collaboration with Classical Theater of Harlem. And I was talking to her afterwards and she was asking me what I was doing, you know, what was coming up next. And I, I had said, like, I have all of these things. And I was like, but you know, I have this thing that I can't get out of my, like, I can't get out from underneath my skin. And I told her that I had met uh, Deanna Dowers, who is a PhD candidate who was working, and their thesis was around this black queer aesthetic during the 1915 through 19 like 20s. And so I was talking, and I just like I would just call her all the time. It's like, tell me more about these women. Like, tell me more. Like, I just couldn't get it out of my system. So, um, you know, as I was going through these notes and like the impact that these women had. Like they're relatively unknown, but yet like their legacies like are celebrated in ways that like are no longer tied to them. And there's you know there's a book of like the Harlem Renaissance, and they're literally like multi they're 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 footnotes in all of these men's stories. And I just you know going back with this idea of like uncovering hidden figures, and, like to be able for these three women, all of them wrote in their under their own names at that time as black women, and as queer black women, some that were more out than others, some that were in relationship with both women and men, some that, but I was like, like how bold and revolutionary. And I thought as we were coming up on the centennial for the Harlem Renaissance, like why not focus on something that is not so known? So I was just, I was talking, I was talking to Monique about that. And that's when she, you know, she had brought me in to talk more about and to let me know that I was being commissioned for this idea, even before it was an idea. And so I thought it was lost because 2020 was the centennial. So I understood if like all of the commissions under 2020, if they didn't happen within that year, um, weren't going to happen, but she fought and she fought and she was like, I, I'm going to make this happen for you. So now I will be moving into like my next dance film. And we decided to take it instead of Harlem stage to use Harlem as stage and take it out to the streets and actually let Harlem be the background because they were actually here. So why, why, if, if we're going to go into film, like, let's go, let's hit some locations then. Like why keep it in the proscenium if that's not where we are. 
I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to do a period piece. I'm excited to honor and, and pay homage to these women that have given us so much, whether we know it or not. And I'm really excited as a Harlemite for it to be at Harlem stage, because this will be my first time being presented at Harlem stage as well. And that's that's been like a Harlem bucket list item for me is just like as a Harlemite, it's like you want to, and to be able to be one of the artists that's that is able to commemorate the Harlem Renaissance while being in Harlem and to, like I was like it, it's I mean it's kind of a big deal it's the biggest thing that's happened in the arts in a hundred years so there's that and not just like black arts in the arts I would argue period period because it influenced everything so to be able to ask to have to say anything about it was is really um truly incredible Thank you so much, Tiffany. I really appreciate you sharing. I mean, you've obviously put a lot of time and labor into putting words around these ideas and these thoughts that you've had. And I appreciate you sharing that that with us. Yeah, thank you for asking me. That that's a, I, I really do appreciate that because I don't have, you know, being able to share your platform is huge because I don't have this platform. So I, I really appreciate being asked. So before we say goodbye, where can listeners find out more about your upcoming projects, your film projects and the other work that you're doing with Elisa Monte Dance? Where can we stalk you? Ah, so our, yeah, so the website is elisamontedance.org and it's E-L-I-S-A. Um, on Instagram, same thing, Elisa Monte Dance. I'm T-R-E-A Fisher, one word. Um, I think Instagram is the easiest way to catch up, but we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Great. We'll include links to all of those in our episode description. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tiffany. Have a great one. You too. Thanks again, Tiffany. She's one of my favorite interview guests to date. Such a good conversation. Please do make sure that you're following her and Elisa Montidance on social for updates on the two film projects that she mentioned. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Bye, everyone. Bye, y'all. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Music